Hi, Daily 202 listeners. Allison Michaels here. I'm the politics editor for The Washington Post's audio team. I also host our weekly politics show, Can He Do That? Since James Holman became a Washington Post opinions columnist and left the Daily 202 podcast, we've been working on some new ideas from the audio team. We're dedicated to bringing you an even better experience with The Washington Post in audio, and we have some exciting plans underway to do just that. As we build those plans, we have made the tough decision to stop producing episodes of the Daily 202's Big Idea podcast at the end of this week. But don't unsubscribe from this feed. If you stay subscribed, you'll be among the first to hear news about our new podcasts. In the meantime, the Washington Post audio collection has so many other great shows for you to discover. Since we know you love daily news with us, subscribe to Post Reports, our flagship daily podcast. That show features unparalleled reporting, expert insight, and clear analysis every weekday afternoon. Or consider downloading the Washington Post app to get breaking news and analysis on your mobile device wherever you are. Lastly, as we work on new shows, we'd love to hear from you. And I've heard from so many of you already. I am so impressed, and I'd love to keep the feedback coming. What have you loved about The Daily 202's Big Idea? What do you wish were different? What kind of audio news show would you really want to see? I want to hear all of your feedback directly, so please reach out to me. My email is allison.michaels at washpost.com. That's allison with two L's dot michaels at washpost.com. Thank you all so much for your dedicated listening right here. We're excited about what's next, and we hope you'll join us. Okay, that's it. Here's your news for today. Good morning. I'm Allison Michaels with The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Tuesday, March 30th. In today's news, the White House dramatically increased its tax proposal as it sought to address tensions over the next big spending plan. And the CDC confirms that Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are 90% effective after two doses in a study of real-life conditions. But first, the big idea. Testimony began Monday in the landmark trial of Derek Chauvin, set to be a defining moment in the nation's reckoning over race and policing. My colleagues Holly Bailey and Kim Belware report that prosecutors said Chauvin violated his oath as a police officer when he knelt on George Floyd's neck for over nine minutes and ignored Floyd's cries for help. In opening statements, the prosecution and defense presented vastly different pictures of the May 25th scene that ended with a 46-year-old black man unresponsive beneath the white police officer's knee on a South Minneapolis street. Floyd's death, captured on video, was followed by worldwide protests and weeks of civil unrest in cities across the country. Many will be closely watching to see whether the long days spent in the streets will result in justice, not just for Floyd, but for the countless other Black Americans who have been abused and killed by police. Special Prosecutor Jerry Blackwell told the jury that Chauvin, quote, didn't let up and didn't get up, even after Floyd repeatedly complained of struggling to breathe, cried out for his mother, and ultimately went limp. The prosecutor then played for the jury several minutes of the viral bystander video that showed Chauvin and three other police officers holding Floyd down as he begged for his life, a video that several jurors told the court they had never seen beyond 30-second clips on the news. As the video played on television monitors set up around the socially distanced courtroom, several jurors visibly reacted. One drew a sharp breath as Floyd was heard saying, I can't breathe. One put a hand to her temple while another was looking away. One juror, a white woman in her 50s who works as a nurse, gripped the armrests of her chair. 
Chauvin sat at the defense table, occasionally looking up at the video and taking meticulous notes on a yellow legal pad. He appeared to be avoiding eye contact with the jury. He was a 19-year veteran of the Minneapolis Police Department before he was fired in May. He's pleaded not guilty to second- and third-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter in Floyd's death. Chauvin's attorney, Eric Nelson, pushed back against the prosecution, urging jurors to consider the, quote, totality of the circumstances and to put aside public opinion as they begin to consider the case against his client. Nelson said, quote, there is no political or social cause in this courtroom. He added, quote, the evidence is far greater than nine minutes and 29 seconds. Nelson said that Chauvin arrived at the scene at 38th in Chicago to find other officers struggling to place Floyd inside a squad car and that he was following his training as he and the other officers held the man on the ground. He pointed out that Floyd was several inches taller and outweighed his client. He said the incident occurred in an area known to be hostile to police, which shaped his client's response. He disputed the prosecution's claim that Chauvin was to blame for Floyd's death, saying the autopsy presented no telltale signs of asphyxiation from the officer's knee. He said he will present evidence that Floyd died from a combination of drug intoxication, heart disease, and high blood pressure, and that adrenaline rushing through his body from his struggle with police acted to further compromise an already compromised heart. In his autopsy, Hennepin County Medical Examiner Andrew Baker, who is expected to be a key witness in the case, noted the drugs in Floyd's system, including fentanyl and methamphetamine. But Baker, who ruled Floyd's death a homicide, listed the cause of death as, quote, cardiopulmonary arrest, complicating law enforcement subdual restraint and neck compression. Floyd's cause of death is expected to be a key point of contention during the trial. The other three officers who were at the scene with Chauvin are charged with aiding and abetting murder and manslaughter. Those officers who were also fired are scheduled to stand trial in August. Shortly before proceedings began Monday, several members of Floyd's family joined their attorney Ben Crump and the Reverend Al Sharpton outside the heavily fortified courthouse for a news conference. At one point, the group knelt in silence for 8 minutes and 46 seconds, the initial estimate for how long Chauvin knelt on Floyd's neck. Prosecutors opened their case with testimony from three eyewitnesses, including the dispatcher who phoned a Minneapolis police supervisor after she saw Chauvin and the other officers kneeling on Floyd on a police surveillance camera that overlooks 38th and Chicago. Blackwell previewed dispatcher Jenna Scurry as a witness during his opening statements, saying that after watching Floyd's arrest on a surveillance feed, she did something that she had never done in her career. She, quote, called the police on the police. The prosecutor also called 23-year-old Alicia Euler, who worked at the Speedway gas station across the street from Cup Foods where the incident happened. They introduced seven cell phone video clips of Floyd's arrest that she had filmed that had not been made public until now. A prosecutor asked the visibly nervous Euler why she continued to film the interaction at length. She said, quote, it's always the police. They are always messing with people and it's wrong. It's not right. Prosecutors ended with testimony from Donald Williams II, a bystander with martial arts training who challenged the officers at the scene because he believed Chauvin was using what he described as a blood choke. That's a choke that cuts the circulation from a person's neck and can be dangerous if held for too long. He said he saw the officer shimmying his foot, which he interpreted as increasing pressure on Floyd's neck. Williams testified that he yelled at Chauvin, calling out his use of a blood choke and causing the officer to look up. Williams' testimony, though, was abruptly interrupted when an internet outage cut the broadcast feed from the courtroom, forcing the judge to call an early recess. 
Testimony in the Chauvin case is expected to last about four weeks, with the jury expected to begin deliberations in late April or early May. And that's the big idea. Here are two other stories that should be on your radar. Number one, when President Biden's team began putting together his infrastructure and jobs package this February, the White House National Economic Council circulated an internal proposal calling for about $3 trillion in new spending and $1 trillion in new tax hikes. But soon enough, some members of the economic team second-guessed themselves, concerned that the plan could jeopardize the nation's long-term financial stability. My colleague Jeff Stein reports that officials worried that the large gap between spending and revenue would widen the deficit by such a large degree that it could risk triggering a spike in interest rates, which could, in turn, cause federal debt payments to skyrocket. The two-pronged package, which Biden will begin unveiling this week, includes higher amounts of federal spending, but also significantly more in tax revenue with a possibility of as much as $4 trillion in new spending and more than $3 trillion in tax increases. Still, the choice to increase the bill's tax hikes in part because of its effects on the deficit reflects how concerns over the nation's spending imbalance are shaping the White House's internal policy debate. But it also sets up the administration for an enormous political challenge in convincing Congress to pass a package of tax increases on wealthy Americans and on companies that together would represent the largest tax hike in generations. The shift in strategy reveals just one of the many ways the White House has grappled with shaping Biden's second major legislative effort, which the administration will kick off this week at an event in Pittsburgh. Number two. A federal study released Monday provides reassurance of protection for frontline workers in the United States. The study shows that the Pfizer and Moderna coronavirus vaccines are robustly effective in preventing infections in real-life conditions. My colleague Lena Sun reports that in the study of about 4,000 healthcare personnel, police, firefighters, and other essential workers, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention found that the vaccines reduced the risk of infection by 80% after one shot and 90% after the second dose. The findings are consistent with clinical trial results and studies showing strong effectiveness in Israel and the United Kingdom, and in initial studies of healthcare workers at the UT Southwestern Medical Center and in Southern California. The CDC report is significant, experts said, because it analyzed how well the vaccines worked among a diverse group of frontline working age adults whose jobs make them more likely to be exposed to the virus and to spread it. The workers came from eight locations in six states. They received vaccinations between mid-December, when the doses first became available, to mid-March. That's a 13-week period that included the deadly winter surge that was killing more than 3,000 people a day by January. The study is also one of the first to estimate vaccine effectiveness among participants against infection, rather than just monitoring for symptomatic cases. So that means this study also includes infections that did not result in symptoms. Among 2,479 fully vaccinated people, just three had confirmed infections. Among 477 people who received one dose, eight infections were reported. By comparison, among 994 people who were not vaccinated, 161 developed infections. No deaths were reported. CDC Director Rochelle Walensky said the study shows national vaccination efforts are working. She said in a statement that the authorized corona vaccines, quote, provided early, substantial, real-world protection against infection for our nation's healthcare personnel, first responders, and other frontline essential workers. 
The study is ongoing, and researchers will share more details on the infections in people who were partially or fully vaccinated, known as breakthrough infections. Researchers are also studying whether people who became infected despite vaccination may have less severe or briefer illnesses, and whether they shed a lower amount of the virus for less time. Despite the strong protection afforded by the vaccines two weeks after the first dose, scientists are still trying to figure out how long someone is protected against the disease after being fully vaccinated, and whether two doses provide longer-lasting protection than just one. And that's The Daily 202 for Tuesday, March 30th. I'm Allison Michaels. Thanks so much for listening.